Good morning, church. All right. Everybody awake? A little bit. Anybody have prom last night? Might be. I know I got one over here that's like, I hope your sermon's short because I was up late. And I said, I didn't tell her, but you probably need some caffeine. No, I'm going to try not to be too long. But here's the deal. I, I, uh, we're, we're starting a, kind of a three a three-service kind of mini-series this week. Um, my name is Nathan McCallum. I'm a journey group leader here and I've been filling in some, uh, preaching God's word to us. And so I'm grateful to be able to do that. Uh, welcome to Journey. Uh, good to see my church family. And uh, I'm excited about this week. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, and so some of you may be like, what is that? Um, I'm a palm tree Get junky, to be honest. I mean, it's actually quite ridiculous because I don't live anywhere palm trees can survive. But I love palm trees. When we pass them, we, we raise the roof when we enter Florida. I know that's like so old to raise the roof, but that's what we do. Um, and so like, I'm just, so Palm Sunday, I mean, even as a kid, I used to love Palm Sunday. R- quick show of hands, anybody in here ever like get a palm, palm tree leaf when you were in Sunday school as a kid? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I have such great memories of Palm Sunday as a kid. Um, and here's the deal, like what this week is, this is what uh, the church traditionally is called Holy Week or um, maybe Passion Week historically. And so what we're gonna do as a church is we're gonna actually recognize over the next three services, Holy Week, uh, which is Palm Sunday today. This is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, the final week of his life. Good Friday, uh, which is where Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, and next Sunday, which is Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. All right, so that's where we're headed for the next three services. We are having a Good Friday service this Friday at six. My preaching will be more of an exhortation. So if you're like, I had Friday plans, you can keep them. Um, I'm not gonna be up here forever, but we are going to have a Good Friday service at six. And then we're gonna turn around and have, of course, Easter service. And so that's kind of where we're headed over the next week, Holy Week. The church has celebrated Holy Week for a long time. We've recognized it for a long time. And I know for a lot of us, especially maybe that have, that have been at Journey, we haven't always looked at Palm Sunday and we haven't always had Good Friday services and that's okay. But what I wanna do and the reason I felt and the team felt like this was a good place for us to go is because Holy Week will center us on Jesus. It's gonna center us on Jesus. It's historically centered the church on Jesus and the story of Jesus. When you think about the Bible as, a, as one big story, you know, I, I remember learning in English class as a kid, stories have an introduction, they have a rising action, they have a climax, a falling action, I think is what it was called. Um, sorry, Miss Morgan, my uh, high school English teacher, if I got that wrong. And then there's a resolution. Introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution. And if you look at the Bible story in that context, you would say that Jesus is the climax of the story. Jesus is the climax of the story. And if you were to look even more closely, you would say Holy Week is the climax of the climax. This is the pinnacle of the story. And I think it's important for us to hone in on that this week. It's important for us to reflect and remember 
what happened in Holy Week. God has always been about calling his people to remembrance. You see it in the Old Testament, the festivals that they would have, the feasts that they would have. Old Testament would have Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booze. You see Jesus is like the Lord's Supper, communion, which we will take on Friday. We have a tendency as people to forget, forget what God has done, to forget all that he's brought us through. And Holy Week gives us a time to sit down center on Jesus and remember and reflect and to marvel at Jesus and then be moved into action. So that's our goal. And the way I'm framing the, ser- the sermons of the next three, week- next three services is the king is coming. The king is coming. And we're gonna look at it out of the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 21 today. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it, Matthew 21. We're going to be in Matthew 27 on Friday. And we're going to be in Matthew 28 on Easter. The king is coming. And I know for a lot of us, we're like kings. It just kind of feels awkward. We're in America like we started because we didn't really like kings. Um, But kingship in the Bible is actually pretty fluid all throughout. And when you look specifically at Matthew... Matthew goes to great pains to show us that Jesus is a king. You see, first of all, in Matthew chapter one, verse one, where he basically says, Jesus, this is the story of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, who the promise was given to by God, that his seed would bless the world. The son of David, which is a messianic, a messianic uh, calling of God, that there would be a king that would come from David that would reign forever. He is showing from the very first verse of Matthew that this story about Jesus is about his kingship. You see in verse, chapter two, verse two, the Magi come. And what do they ask when they get to Jerusalem when Jesus was born? What do they ask? Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? You see in chapter three, John the Baptist announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a king, there's a kingdom. And Jesus speaks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. Throughout Matthew, Jesus' kingship becomes more clear as you progress forward. But when you get to the last week of his life, Holy Week, it just hits a climax, his kingship. And so let's let King Jesus show us who he is today, Friday, next Sunday. Let's let him show us who he is and let's let him shape us in the best way possible. So today, Matthew 21, I'm gonna read verses one through 22 uh, and then we're gonna talk for a little bit. Matthew 21, I'm gonna read it in in totality to start with. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth. I'm not sure, Bethphage, I meant to look that up and forgot. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out, to the city, or out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. A lot there. But here's what I want to do. I think I want, there's three scenes here. There's three scenes in this passage and I think there's two symbols. Three scenes, two symbols, and each scene tells us something about our king and each symbol shows us something about our king. And so as we look at each scene and we look at the symbolism that is there in each scene, I think we'll notice three aspects of King Jesus. Okay, three aspects of King Jesus today. We're gonna see that he's a king, the king promised. He's the king promised. He's a king with ultimate authority. And he's the king of kings with a kingdom. The king promised, a king with ultimate authority, and he's the king of kings with a kingdom. So let's dive in here quickly. The first thing we will, that we'll see here in verses one through 11 is that Jesus is a king and the king promised. The first scene that we see here is the tri what's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. This is the jumping off point for Holy Week. So let's set the scene. Jerusalem is, in, is getting ready to celebrate the feast of Passover. This is the largest festival of the year for the Jews. This is their remembrance that God instituted in the Old Testament when he, when he delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, the Exodus account, and he set them free through the Red Sea and towards the promised land. 
And the death angel, the last plague that came over, over Egypt, Israel was spared by, by taking an unblemished lamb, the blood of an unblemished lamb, and pinning it on their doorpost. The death angel passes over God's people. This is Passover. And this is Passover week. That's what's going on. And Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem and ultimately preparing to enter the temple with his disciples. And a crowd of Galileans are with him who had just witnessed many of his miracles and his teachings. You know, Bethany, where he goes the, the, uh, after the second scene, we see he goes to Bethany. That's where he had just not long before this raised Lazarus from the dead. You have a lot of people who are talking about Jesus in these towns outside Jerusalem and they're coming with him. But notice that Jesus chooses to enter in a very symbolic way. He tells the disciples in verses one through three what to do. Go find a donkey and her colt and tie them and bring them to me. He is gonna come in and intentionally invoke a 500 plus year old prophecy from Zechariah. That's what Matthew does a lot. He has this formula in his gospel that will say thus or that, that says this took place to fulfill something, something. And that's what we see in verses four and five. Jesus tells the disciples to go get the colt and the donkey. They do, they bring it back. And it says, this took place, verse four, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus intentionally calls them to get the donkey and the colt because he knew I'm about to fulfill this prophecy. It's about to get tense. Jesus wasn't just a promised king. Notice what it says there in verse five. He's your promised king. He's the king, say to daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem. Your king is coming. This is not just your king, he's the promised king. The king that had been promised to Israel through their story, through centuries of prophecy. This is the king. Throughout the gospel narratives of Jesus' life, a pretty perceptive reader of the gospels would begin to see all different types of themes from the Old Testament laid upon, and, and Israel's history laid upon these narratives. And so Jesus is coming in this way very intentionally, provoking those in Jerusalem to see him as the fulfillment of this promised king in Zechariah. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. 500 years before this happened, Zechariah made this prophecy. Think about what all can happen in 500 years. Think about church history. It's 2022. We are just beyond 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther nails his theses to the door, that is how much can happen in 500 years. 500 years, it's hard for us in America to actually identify with how Israel probably felt. I mean, if we're just being honest, the level of angst and anticipation that they would have had to feel all throughout their history, they're always waiting. I mean, what do we wait for? I mean, it's. I feel like it gets harder and harder to wait, right? Like the more technology we get, the harder. I mean, I remember the, uh, I was thinking about trying to mimic the sound and you might think it's weird. You know, do you remember the, er, dee dong, dee dong, beep. 
What was that? Dial-up internet? Remember that? I mean, I remember when dial-up internet, I mean, it might take five minutes to get connected to the internet. If somebody's phone doesn't work for five minutes, they're probably throwing it out the window now. How about Napster? Anybody remember Napster? I mean, I didn't use it if this is not being recorded. Um, it was pirated way of downloading music. And so it would take 25 minutes to download an MP3. I was in college and it would take 25 minutes to download an MP3 of a song you might like. And you just hope nobody called you and interrupted your connection in the middle of it. As a kid, I remember calling like the um, radio DJ so I could, you know, request a song for the girl down the street um, on Saturday nights. Probably something Phil Collins. Um, <laughs> And just waiting, waiting, and then she moved to Texas. <laughs> and now we freak out when our IG, Instagram, uh, you know, doesn't refresh quick enough or my Google app doesn't work right away. Our culture doesn't understand waiting. And it's just getting worse. And the Israelites were a people very, very com not comfortable, but very familiar with waiting. Some of these prophecies, prophecies from Isaiah, 700 years before they were fulfilled. Some of these prophecies took two to three times the length of our country's history just to come to fruition. And we have a hard time too picturing what it would be like for foreign rulers to come in and take over our land, to evacuate our homes. We don't really understand. Now we can imagine it because of the awful things we've seen in the last couple months on TV. But for us to actually understand what that would be like for century after century, imagine being an Israelite for a second and having these prophecies of old. The Lord sends word through a prophet that he will deliver your people. He will raise up this anointed leader, this king of kings that will save you. And then you never see that day. And your children wait and your grandchildren wait, and your great-grandchildren wait, and your great-great-grandchildren wait, still oppressed, invaded by armies for centuries, very little peace. And even though even now they are back in the land, they're under a foreign ruler, and they're all waiting for another exodus like God did with Moses. They're waiting. Can you imagine the anticipation of the day that that king arrived? And can you imagine the hopelessness that you would feel after 100 years, 200 years, 500 years? Can you imagine the fervor that would be created if he came? Well, he did come. And fervor, it created. You look at verse 10, the whole crowd was stirred. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, Galileans everywhere, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David. And Jerusalem's going, what is going on? Who is this guy? King Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Israel. And it's currently occupied by Rome and the religious elite of the day. And he's taking up the prophecy of Zechariah and riding in as a king. 
And he chooses to do it at Passover when the city is packed to the gills. It's intentional. And God kept his promise to Israel in his time. And honestly, when they least expected it. So what's the symbol of this scene? Jesus is doing something both literal and symbolic. He comes, Jesus, the promised king, but he comes gentle, peaceful, and riding on a donkey. The king comes into the town boldly, intentionally playing out the prophecy of Zechariah, leaving nothing up to interpretation. Nothing up to interpretation. And yet at the same time, he shows that he's a peaceful king and his crew that's with him is not overly impressive or scary. This would not be the type of triumphal entry that the Jews or the Romans for that matter would be used to. Philip Yancey wrote in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he says this about the triumphal entry. He says, yes, there was a whiff, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome and not the kind that impressed crowds in Jerusalem for very long either. What manner of king was this? What manner of king was this? Well, he was a king promised by God centuries before coming to Jerusalem to bring about a kingdom that no one was expecting. And here's the deal for us today. Like, what does this mean for us today? Well, some, some of us today, you probably feel like Jesus has taken his eye off your life. If you're being honest, I know you probably think, I'm not supposed to say that. But if you're being honest, you might think Jesus has taken his eye off your life. Like you've become invisible. Like your circumstances don't matter. And Holy Week shows us on repeat that God is faithful. Holy Week shows us on repeat that he keeps his, province, his promises, but he does it in his sovereignty and his timing. Brothers and sisters, God is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. He's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. So my question for you is what promises of God do you need today to dig deeper wells of trust in? What promises of God do you need to dig deeper wells of trust in your heart? How about this? Hebrews 13, five. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Ever feel like that wasn't true? He's a promise keeper. You're never alone. How about this? Psalm 30, verse five. For his anger lasts only a moment but his favor lasts a lifetime. The Lord's love triumphs over judgment for his own. Do you believe that? How about this promise? Psalm 25, 10, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. Now, at first you're like, ooh, that seems kind of harsh, the demands of his covenant. But if you look at the fact that the Lord his ways, what he calls us to, like we talked about in Psalm 23, the paths of righteousness. His ways are loving and faithful. And that word loving in other translations, it's the, it's the Hebrew word has said, it just means steadfast love, faithful love. It's this idea of long suffering in his love. How about this promise? 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Praise his name. But God, the two, that most beautiful phrase. But God, one of the greatest statements in scripture. He will overwhelm our spiritual deadness with life and vitality by grace. Or how about this promise, John eleven twenty five? I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Jesus says to Martha before he raises Lazarus. Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Not even death can stop life for the one who believes. Jesus sees us through death to resurrection and life. Church, this is just a, just a, a few of hundreds of promises. What promise of God have you given up on that he wants you to take heart in this morning? Maybe there's another one in your mind that you've memorized and you're questioning. Is this true? It's true. Holy Week, the promised king, is a promise keeper. So we have this heightened situation, the crowds raising a ruckus, the city stirred up, the long-awaited promised king was coming into Jerusalem. This was not a drill. This was not a game. This was for real. And although the king was coming on a donkey, don't mistake this, he was coming with authority. And so the second aspect we see as we get into scenes two and three are a king with ultimate authority. Both scenes two and three kind of fall under this heading. They're separate scenes on separate days, but they do relate to one another so much so that after these events, Jesus enters the temple courts into this question, Matthew 21, 23. So after what we're about to talk about, this is the reaction. This is 21:23. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? So his authority is obvious. They're not like, does he have the, they're like, he's got authority, we can see it. We're just curious, like where did this kind of authority come from? His authority is obvious and it's stirring up trouble with religious leaders. So let's look at each scene by itself, scene two, scene three, and then let's see his authority. And then we'll tie both the scenes together with kind of one symbol. So scene two, Jesus at the temple, let's read 12 through 27. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What we see here is Jesus as a king with ultimate authority. And the easiest way I think we can understand the use of this authority is to kind of categorize his authority in these two ways. He had the authority to reject 
And he had the authority to renew. The authority to reject, the authority to renew. So let's look at scene two, what we just read. How does he have the authority? Where do we see his authority to reject here? Well, Jesus enters the temple courts. The teachers of the law, the chief priests and the high priests, they all did their work at the temple. The temple is where all Jewish authority sprang from. The temple in Judaism and in Jerusalem is like the political, economic, and religious hub of the city and of the faith. And so the temple is where all Jewish authority springs from. All the Jewish power either resided in the temple with the chief priests, the high priests, the teachers of the law, or it flowed out from the temple into local synagogues. This is the pinnacle. And literally, it's on a mountain. It's on a mountain. And so also inside you have this marketplace where there's money changers so that Gentiles coming in for Passover can exchange their money so they can buy the proper sacrifices to give a sacrifice. And so in essence, the temple, as I said, is the political, economic, and religious heart of first century Judaism. And Jesus comes into this authoritative place the most authoritative place in Jerusalem and Judaism, and he rejects what's going on. He rebukes the leaders of the temple. He rebukes the priests of the temple. He rebukes the teachers. And he's using scripture as he confronts the way that they have never understood the purpose of the temple. That it would be a place and house of prayer and some places say for all nations, and they've turned it into a den of robbers. Instead of being a house of prayer, it is a den of robbers, and they're robbing people in all kinds of ways. They're robbing people through exploitation. They're placing heavier burdens on people and robbing them of peace. They're robbing them of justice. They're robbing them of mercy. And they're not being faithful to what they were called to be. They're robbing them of faithfulness. This is why in two chapters after this, Matthew 23, which I would really recommend you guys read 21 to the end of Matthew this week. The whole, it's covering the whole week. But in 23, he challenges the Pharisees and he says, you tithe mint dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They're robbing. And so Jesus, he's an interior designer. He comes to spruce the place up a little bit. I'm gonna turn this table and throw it over there. This bench, I think it'd be better flipped out over there. I'm gonna drive you guys out. Not to mention the Greek word used here for driving out is the same word used when he drove out demons. This is authority. This is an authoritative sprucing up of the place. He has the authority to reject, but he also has the authority to renew because in the very next moment, he heals the blind and the lame who were in the Gentile courtyard because that's as far as they could get, even if they were Jews, because they, because of their infirmities, because of their condition, they were relegated to this, this entry, entry point that non-Jews had to stick to. And Jesus fixes that. What compassion. He heals them 
right in front of the teachers. This is my house. This is what he does. He comes in and he renews. He brings healing. And we also see renewal because the children, the children, not, not the learned, the children are dancing and praising full of joy, Hosanna to the son of David. He has the authority to renew, folks. This section in some of your Bibles, I'm reading from the NIV today, it says Jesus at the temple. Many of them will say Jesus cleanses the temple. I like that. So what is this cleansing of the temple display ultimately, or what this cleansing of the temple display ultimately shows is his authority over the temple and his desire to renew its purposes and to align it with the heart of God. King Jesus has the authority to walk into the temple, the place of highest Jewish authority, and he does what he pleases. But he doesn't curse the temple. Instead, he's just gonna renew the temple, but just not how anybody could see coming. Scene two. Scene three. Let's move on. Scene three, cursing the tree. Matthew 21, 18 through 22. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up and found it, found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. I would ask the same thing. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what is done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So again, taking the two categories of authority, let's look at this last scene together and see if we can paint the overall picture of Palm Sunday. And what is this crazy story pointing to? Anybody else thinking we're done? Actually, I don't even know. No, I'm kidding. It's wild though. And here's the deal. A lot of people who just kind of read this passage they miss the symbolism because they don't read it in the context of the story. They, they, they don't, if you don't read it in context of the story, you can kind of go all over the place with this passage. But while Jesus is clearly teaching a principle about how God answers prayers that are in line with his kingdom, I don't believe that's the main thrust of what Jesus is getting at here, at least not with the scene itself. Because that would be like an odd aside in the middle of the story, right? Like I go to the temple, I cleanse it, I go out, sleep. I'm on my way back. Hey, real quick, guys, this little thought on prayer. Just want to tell you real quick while I do this really crazy miracle. Okay, let's get back to the temple. That makes sense. Now, this story takes place between two visits to the temple. The day before, he cleans out the temple. Today, like we already read in verse 23, he's heading back to the temple and when even there, he's questioned by the chief priests and the teachers about his authority, where it comes from. And this fig tree story is sandwiched between, the, between these two temple trips, okay? So let's think about it in the context. Where do we see the authority to reject? Well, obviously, he rejects the tree. He did not destroy the temple He's not destroying people. There's actually only two miracles that he does that destroys anything. Last week, it was sending the demons into pigs. Today, it's the tree. He rejects the tree. He curses the tree. It's interesting because the tree is in leaf. 
as though it maybe should have fruit. It's funny, I didn't ask this. I'm probably gonna have to give my son a quarter. Yesterday, we were in the car um, and we're driving and Brooks just looks out the window and he's like, hey, trees, don't you know winter's over? Where are your leaves? It's pretty fitting. I mean, Jesus shows up, there's leaves. So there should be fruit, right? Now, Mark interestingly says that it wasn't the season for figs. Either way you look at it though, here's the deal. The king is looking for fruit and he doesn't find any. And he curses the tree and it withers. That's some pretty amazing authority. But before you think it's just about authority and some miracle he can do, and before you think he did it as an angry tantrum, we actually have to see the point. And the point is actually found in his authority to renew. King Jesus is renewing the disciples' understanding of what he came to do. Because of the context of this event, what is actually happening is Jesus is examining the tree for fruit like he did examine the temple for fruit. And he found both of them lacking. But he doesn't just reject everyone for not having fruit. Instead, he rejects a tree and renews an understanding of his people of what he's come to do. And yes, he does have authority to answer prayer by faith because of the faith in him and what he's doing in his kingdom. But ultimately, Jesus, the king of ultimate authority, is bringing renewal. So what's the symbol of scenes two and three? I think the symbolism for both scenes is tied up in how Jesus engages with the temple. In scene two, he rejects the temple because he doesn't find the fruit that it was intended to produce and to be quite honest, could have never fully produced or accomplished. In scene three, the temple is the backdrop though. So you may be like, well, I see him in the temple in scene two. I don't see him in the temple in scene three. Well, look what he says. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, truly, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, not a mountain, this mountain. What mountain? Where is Jesus? Well, He's standing on the Mount of Olives. My wife and I were blessed to be able to go to Israel in 2017 through uh, the company I work for. And I was that spiritual guy that's like, I don't need to go to the Holy Land. God's holiness and spirit is everywhere. And I get there and I'm like, this is incredible. And there's one of the days we stand on the Mount of Olives now, it's different now, obviously, than 2,000 years ago. But when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look over the valley, you see the Temple Mount, which is now a mosque, but you can see where the temple was. Jesus is standing on the, the Mount of Olives, but, but I believe, and most scholars that I read believe, that when he says this mountain, he's not talking about a generic mountain. He's looking across the valley to them and saying, this mountain, the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, and he's saying, this whole system is gonna get thrown in the sea. It served its purpose. 
It was God's design. It wasn't a bad thing, but it served its purpose in its time. It's no longer needed because God had his purposes for the temple, for his presence to dwell among his people, but those purposes are complete. Why? Because God has returned to the temple. And he returned to the temple in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The king has come. And that system is passing away. Jesus is saying now, and we'll be saying throughout this whole week, the temple and all it stood for was pointing to me. Jesus is the true fruit of Israel. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is bringing a new covenant. Jesus is making the unclean clean. Come to Jesus, your king. Uh, if you've seen Talladega Nights, if you haven't, skip it. But if you have, uh, you'll hear Will Ferrell, whose character Ricky Bobby is praying to Lord Baby Jesus, asking him to use his Baby Jesus powers to heal. And it's making light, honestly, of prayer, and it's making light of Ricky Bobby. But it's funny because you watch it. I mean, it's kind of like you're kind of like cringing, but you're kind of like, it's kind of funny. Um, Sweet baby Jesus, Christmas Jesus. You know, many in our culture, they're cool with Christmas Jesus. They're cool with baby Jesus. King Jesus, that's a different story. We live in a culture that hates exclusivity. We just do. And each passing generation rebels even more against authority than its predecessor. So for Jesus to be the only way to true life, the way life was designed to be, to be the king of heaven and earth, well, that just irritates people. But honestly, if you think about it, King Jesus speaking into and having authority over your life is actually more of a proof of his reality in your life. Tim Keller, who is... uh, a guru of mine anyway. Uh, uh, he a, was a pastor in New York City. Um, very intellectual, uh, but, but makes things down to earth. He has a book called The Reason for God. Super influential uh, in understanding philosophically like defending the faith. And he talks about in his book on the authority, he's actually talking about the authority of the Bible, but, but it ties in here. Uh, about, he talks about how it's actually the authority of Jesus, the authority of God that actually makes more sense than a God who has no authority over your life at all or ever challenges you in any way. Okay, so here's what Tim Keller says. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you wanna believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you have a relationship or any kind of genuine transaction or interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, I mean, my marriage never has struggle, but I guess Keller's does. 
will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? You see, while Keller was referring to the Bible in total, it actually does apply here to understanding Jesus as the king and ultimate authority. If you're Jesus, church, if you're Jesus, can't speak into your life in ways that contradict your desires, your feelings, your plans, you don't have King Jesus. You have cheerleader Jesus at best. If Jesus cannot clean your house and, cor and course correct your life when you need it, you haven't surrendered to the real Jesus. And conversely though, if you're seeking Jesus, but only since he's always rejecting you, well, you aren't hearing the real Jesus then either. He will convict, but he will not condemn if you're seeking him. Romans 8 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Not, there's a very little condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He may reject your actions at times, but he wants to renew your heart. And if you are here and you feel and you hear more condemnation in your spirit every day, I'm asking you to allow King Jesus to authoritatively speak this sweet assurance over your soul. King Jesus, a king who corrects and a king who gives hope, both with the aim of renewal and healing. So if Jesus is the promised king and he comes in all authority to renew all things, how does that play out in the end? Why did he come? Instead of leaving us to ourselves to waste away in our sin, what's the long game? Well, I think to get a, a picture of the long game, we can flip back to finish up, we're about done, to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, this is the prophecy that, uh, that Matthew quotes in 21.4. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Man, that's awesome. Now, that wasn't all in Matthew, just a little portion of it. So I want us to look quickly Notice the extent of his rule. When the king comes and this, full, this thing fully comes to culmination, notice when the king is coming what the extent of his rule is. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea, the totality of creation. I can't help but think, I don't know, this is subjection, but I can't help but think that when Jesus had the, gave them the image of the temple mount being thrown into the sea, this was in his mind. Can you imagine like an asteroid 
hitting the sea, throwing the Temple Mount into the sea, the repercussions of that, just flowing sea. It just, everything is just overflowing with the reaction of what's happened. Sea to sea, his rule will be. But not just sea to sea. Notice he also says the river to the ends of the earth. What does that mean? And why is river capitalized? Because it's not just any river. It's the river Euphrates. Okay, awesome. Moving along. Well, where do we see the river Euphrates in scripture? We actually see it in Genesis 2. It was one of the rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. Why is that significant? Because the king's rule is not just from sea to sea, but it's gonna extend from the garden to the ends of the earth. The garden where the curse began. The garden, because of our sin, that was tainted and the river that flowed out and infected the ends of the earth, the king comes and reverses the curse. And when this king comes, he brings restoration to the very problem that's broken everything from sea to sea. This means every relationship, every disaster, every fracture, every oppression, every injustice, whether it's racial injustice, socioeconomic injustice, humanitarian injustice, all brokenness running from the river to the ends of the earth, this curse will be lifted by our king. Praise his name. And how's he gonna accomplish that? Riding on a donkey? The king wins the battle because he's righteous and lowly. That's what it says in verse nine. He's righteous, it means he's faithful to the covenant. He's coming to Jerusalem and he's more faithful to the covenant than anyone ever has been. He's fully faithful to the covenant. He's the perfect covenant keeper. He's holy and blameless. But, but here's the thing, church. That's not enough. If he's, if he's righteous, that's bad news for us, right? Because we're not. But he's lowly. The Hebrew word here, lowly, translated as ani. And when you look at the word, the semantic range that which they could use to translate that word and do use to translate that word could mean poor, humble, lowly, listen afflicted afflicted see Jesus is the coming king who is righteous but he's afflicted he's the one who least deserved to be afflicted but was instead was inflicted on our, afflicted on our behalf and he's the coming king who would be Righteous and would apply that righteousness to his people by faith, bringing peace through his affliction by the blood of his cross. You notice Matthew doesn't quote all of that. 
because at this point, the king wasn't fully victorious. There was a few more days before that would take place. It'll take the rest of the week for his victory to play out. But it's coming. So what does this mean for us today? It's closing and a call to action. What does this mean for us today? When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a forgiver of your sins? He is that, but is that all you see? Do you see a savior that will give you eternal life? He will. But what about life now? Does he have anything to say about life now? Is he, I mean, Jesus is cool. He's an all right guy. He supplements well my real hope in the world, my political candidate or my party of choice. Is that who he is? Is that who you see? Is he a good add-on to your awesomeness, your righteous living? I mean, I'm pretty good, but I'll take Jesus for what I'm not. Is that how you see Jesus? Be honest, is he boring? Do you find King Jesus boring? Or is he a king who is the long-awaited king of kings, who has all authority in this world and over your life? Who do you see? The second thing I'd ask is promises of God. Do the promises of God encourage you? Or does church hurt, which is real, or other hurt, which is real, do those hurts cause you, have they caused you to become cynical? He's a promise keeper. And finally, church. What about church? If he's a king and he's got a kingdom, how does that play out? It plays out in church. It plays out in the local church. But here's the deal. For a lot of us, church is a game. It's a game. Do you see the church as a game or do you see it where God is at work and where you're able to work out with your king and his kingdom? Because we live in a community. One of the probably, the, the, there's not many of these left, but I think Jonesboro is definitely one. We live in a community where it still might actually cost you to not believe in Jesus. For a lot of us, it'd be bad for business if we were atheists, if we weren't part of the church in some way. So in some ways in Jonesboro, it's kind of expected somewhat culturally that you'd be part of a church, especially if you're an adult. But here's the thing, that type of culture can create a cultural Christianity that's assumed. And look at me, it's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. I mean, we live in a city where if playing church is your game, you got hundreds of places to play. And you can do the song and dance you know when to lift your hands and you can look the part externally and your heart can be far from God. Jesus is nothing more than a check mark on your weekend. 
He isn't king. And that's a temptation probably for a lot of us. But in the church, we're able to live out our calling with Jesus as our king in his kingdom and through the local things that we can do through our jobs, through our partnerships, our national and global partnerships, we can actually be part of his kingdom rule, making its way from the river to the ends of the earth. Does Jesus have authority in your life? Who do you see when you look at Jesus? Because he's the king and he's come. Let's pray. Our Father, you have lavished grace upon grace on us. And Jesus, you are so faithful. And your word is true. You are a firm foundation. And Jesus, you are a king. And we confess that we want you as our king. Help us to believe your rule is good, that your promises are true that you will renew us as our king forever and ever for the glory of your name through your love and your righteousness and your affliction that you bore for us. We love you. And it's for your amazing and beautiful and wonderful name. Amen.